1: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now, here's your host, Cheryl Esposito.
2: Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we have a very special guest, Anthony Cortese, who is the founder and president of Second Nature, which is a nonprofit dedicated to developing the national capacity to make healthy, just, and sustainable action a foundation of all learning and practice in higher education. Wow, that's quite a mission. Say that 25 times fast. Um, Anthony also is co-organizer of the American College and University President's Climate Commitment, and he's formerly commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of the Environmental Protection 25 years of being engaged in climate change and other large systems, sustainability challenges. Anthony, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be with you.
2: It is great to have you here today. Where are you today?
3: I am in Boston, Massachusetts, which is the uh, home office of Second Nature.
2: Oh, great. So, let's see. Are, Are you having a sunny day?
3: Yes, it's actually quite nice today. Oh, um, uh, it's uh, quite pleasant, and uh, it's uh, rather warm for this time of year. But that's not unusual given the, the um, uh, what global warming is doing to disrupting the climate. So
2: <laughs> we, we're huh. seeing
3: lots of evidence here.
2: <laughs> lots of evidence. All right. So, so Anthony, I, um, you know, I, I gave the long definition of the um, mission of the organization that you are co-founder and president of, Second Nature. And um, I want to talk a bit about, you know, what, what that's about and, and, you know, what your role is there and, and how it's making a difference in the world. But before that, you know, I'm really curious. You have spent 25 years engaged in the issue of climate change and sustainability. And I'm just wondering, you know, what got you intrigued with this whole issue to begin with a long time ago?
3: Well, you know, that's a good question, uh, because I sometimes wonder myself. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, it really goes back to um, my childhood. I grew up in in the north end of Boston, Mm -hmm. um, which is uh, the oldest um, residential, continuous residential neighborhood in the United States. Um, It was one of the earliest parts of Boston was founded. Um, After the founding of Boston, it went through a number of of uh, ethnic changes starting first with um with people from England that came to the United came to what were the colonies in those days and then um, afterwards was a a place for immigration of different groups um, German Irish uh Jewish um, uh, and then finally Italian and when I was growing up uh, there uh in the 1950s and 60s it was uh predominantly Italian American mm-hmm. and uh, blue-collar Italian-American neighborhood, and um, I like to—I uh, used to go swimming in Boston Harbor. My family liked to go and, and dig for clams. Uh oh, you know, yeah. It was a kind of fun, fun kind of family event mm-hmm. uh, on Sundays. But after about age eight, we weren't allowed to do that anymore because Boston Harbor was so polluted.
4: Oh wow!
3: And um, <clears throat> and so, in typical fashion, you know, um, you know, being. Uh, uh, this, the son of, um, of immigrants, and um, and uh, they wanted us to go to you know get a good education so we could have a, a better quality of life. And so when I went to uh, when I decided to go to college, I was good in math and science, and I thought that I would be I would um, major in engineering, uh, which is exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. And as I was uh, beginning to do that work and I was uh, getting an engineering degree, I began to be aware of the larger social issues, and uh, including the civil rights issues um, in the 1960s. I had a, um, I also remembered back what it was like growing up in the North End, and that that I couldn't go swimming in Boston Harbor and Mm -hmm. clamming, and that a lot of people had respiratory disease from the air pollution. Wow. and uh And I said, "You know, um, I really feel like I should be doing something uh, to uh, solve that problem and making sure that no, no one should have to live in an area where they can't go swimming um, they can't um you know eat the the locally available shellfish uh, right. and uh, are having difficulty breathing and uh, that was not right to me, so I thought i wanted to use my um, interest in engineering in a positive way to begin to solve those problems. I felt like it was not right that people would have to live that way. Mm. And so um, that's what got me interested in, um, in environmental engineering, which was really about a form of civil engineering to find ways to, to uh, prevent water pollution, uh, to make sure that we all had clean drinking water, to control the pollution from um, from factories and um, and from uh, power plants, and to um, essentially try to get our, our industrial system oriented in a way that it would not be polluting the air, the water, and the land. And um, I also had an interest in, in public service. Um, I grew up uh, in... During this During the early sixties, I really answered the call of John Kennedy um, and believed that the one of the highest callings in life was public service and some of the people that I admired the most were were um, people that were dedicating their life to public service so in wanting to combine the work to uh, to try to control pollution and also to um, to be serving the public, I found the perfect match, which was uh, to um, to go for a career working for um, the state and federal government to uh, try to control pollution. So I, um, after I graduated from Tufts and um, worked on my master's degree, I uh, was able to get into the U- U.S. Public Health Service and was part of the original um, 3,000 employees that were pulled together in 1970 to create the. Um, Environmental Protection Agency from um, five different uh, government agencies. And so that's how I got my start and uh, what got me really interested in all of this work. And I pursued that for a, a very long time and had the privilege of working for the EPA and then uh, later um, actually directing the State Department of Environmental Protection for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts.
4: Right.
3: And um, so um, but that's how I got involved. And it really came from a, a, a deep-rooted com- conviction that no one should have to live uh, in, a, in a world in which, um, in which the air, the water, the land, the food um, would be polluted um, as a result of some people being able to have um, you know, um, economic wherewithal and everybody else suffering the consequences of, um, of pollution that effect- deeply affects people's health right and and the other thing that um you know and and then I was fortunate that um to um that EPA sent me for my uh, doctorate in um in environmental health sciences to at, to the at the Harvard School of Public Health and um and the reason for that was because my biggest concern about um, contamination of the environment was how it would affect people's health mm-hmm. and it was um you know a deep rooted understanding that if you go back to the turn of the century, you know, of the 20th century, not the 21st century, if you go back to the turn of the 20th mm-hmm. century, mm-hmm. the major causes of death um, were from mostly from infectious diseases of one kind or another. And we were able to reduce the death rate for, from um, most of those infectious diseases by about 90% um, before the introduction of antibiotics and vaccines. And oh, wow. we did that through um, water food and milk sanitation, a reduction in physical crowding, the changing of central of going to central heating in our homes hmm. and and changing from uh, coal and wood yeah. to oil and natural gas as a form of central heating and uh, and that is where you know where where it really occurred to me that one of the best places that we could intervene uh, to try to promote health for as many people as possible um, was to try to protect the environment. And that's that's how I, that's, so you asked me the question of, you know, how I get into all of this, that, that's it.
2: Well, and you know, that, that really speaks to how you deeply listened to yourself, and um i don't I don't think we necessarily encourage that so much in young people to deeply listen to themselves. We say things like, "Follow your passion, you know, do something that matters to you." And then we say, "Oh, but by the way, um, go get that degree, and you know the only way you can really make a living is to work for a large corporation. I mean, there's a right. lot of pressure in our society to to do that. And so, yeah, I'm curious, was there. Was there something in your upbringing from, your, from a parental perspective? You know, did, did your parents, were, you, were they key to this? I mean, we could say you followed the logical path, you know, with your environmental engineering, et cetera, et cetera, and, of course, the experience of not being able to go swimming and clamming in Boston Arbor. Um, but there had to have been something else, some level of support for the idea that you could do something different. Well, yes.
3: I think it was. Um, I think there were a couple of things. First of all, um, uh, my my father grew up in a small farm in, in uh, Italy, and they were very poor, mm. which is why they came to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and he always talked about what it was like to um, live on a farm and to live in nature. And uh, one of the things that we did is, uh, as a kid, we'd all pile in the car. Uh, on a Sunday, and, and uh, we would go to different places, um, and it was always out in the country. Mm-hmm. And it was a sense um, of a connection to nature um, that he and my mother brought brought to me.
4: Right.
3: And it was, it, but it was really something else. It was, it was a. Um, it, they lived their lives in a in a way that uh, they they did not care about um, a lot of material things. As long as they had a place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had family around, and they could um and they could be connecting with the family and the people that they cared about. yeah, it was all about that first and everything else second yes, yes. and so what I did not get from them is the push to have a big house mm-hmm. uh an important job um it was it was really oriented towards family and community, mm-hmm. and for them, community also meant. You know the quality of life and the place that they lived.
4: Sure, sure.
3: So that's where a lot of it uh, really uh, did come. And um, I- interestingly enough, um, my father, who was a, was a, um, a worked in a shoe factory, uh, where he he was a cobbler and he stitched the the soles on shoes for he worked for Stride Right Corporation, mm-hmm. made children's shoes. And uh, you know his his. Um, his whole focus um, was for me to have a secure job because he knew what it was like, you know, to, um, to uh, he was fortunate enough to be a union worker, and he knew what it was like not to have a secure job. So the one thing that he wanted me to do was to have security, and and uh, I have never had a secure job in my entire life. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite true because I had some security when I worked for the for the federal government. But you know, once I got to the point where I was um, directing a state agency, and then the work that I did afterwards um, was uh, none of it had uh, any real security in the sense that he would think about, which is you know a guaranteed job, a guaranteed pension. Um, But he was always very proud of what I did because he felt like. I was following my passion, and I was doing something good for society. And that was the most important thing to him. It was about doing something good for other people. Hmm. And um, and it was there that I, that I think I picked up my most important values.
2: Hmm. Well, you know, I mean, I, that strikes me as so vital, and I think about our generation today who, who spends a lot of time um, Accumulating things, you know, via their parents, um, whether it's little toys that I love, you know, the computer and the iPhone and I mean all that, all of that accoutrement. Um, and yet, you know, they're saying, well, it's a way to connect. And yet, I'm wondering if the connections are deep enough. If they're connecting to people in a deep way. If they're connecting to um, a sense of place in an important way I and mean, what is your perspective on that
3: well that's, that's an interesting question uh, one of the things that I find uh, quite exciting about about young people today is that um, is that they, they really do care more about, um, about I think a sense of community than I think mm. um, occurred um, you know in the last uh, 30 to 40 years mm-hmm. before this latest generation that they call the millennial generation. Right. So I think that's very positive. I mean, one of the reasons that we have um, today a, a rather remarkable thing has happened. We have uh, a two, a 675 colleges and universities that have committed to do something that no one in society has done before, which is to make their campuses completely free of greenhouse gases. I mean, no one has done yeah. that in no other sector and um and that's six hundred and seventy five colleges and universities in all fifty states and these um and this would not have happened if it weren't for the student activism hmm. I mean the that's students have been really pushing hard uh, for colleges and universities to give them the knowledge and the skills to have a decent quality of life um you know for themselves and for their for their their children and their children's children, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I—that's a very positive thing from my perspective. On the other hand, I think that this, um, that the, uh, the real challenges uh, around um, whether we can create a really good sense of community uh, has to do with the with uh, too much, um, too much connection to information and being too connected in ways that are not necessarily meaningful. And so the electronic um, world is terrific in many respects, but to the extent that it, it is uh, substituting for good mm-hmm. human relationships, it's not good.
4: Right.
3: And one of the things that we do know that is that is disturbing is that um, children today are spending so much less time uh, outside playing, mm-hmm. having free, uh, un. Uh, unstructured time right than ever before in uh, in our history. Right. And we don't know what the consequences uh, of that are, but the one thing that that I can see is when i when I see my nieces and nephews and and um, godchildren just constantly looking at their blackberries or iPhones or iPods and and not interacting with other people, I don't think that can be healthy.
2: Well, we have more to talk about with Anthony Cortese when we come right back.
5: We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
1: consulting, developing leaders worldwide.
5: When you are trying to establish your financial plan, there are all sorts of variables that you'll need to take into consideration, from the ever-changing economy and markets to investment risk and your own financial needs. How do you manage all of it to find a plan that will work for you? Tune in to the Insightful Investor with Bob Pugh. We'll help you iron it all out to help you stick to a financial plan with the knowledge that you need. The Insightful Investor is broadcast live Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: We appreciate you joining our Leading Conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Our guest today is Anthony Cortese. So, Anthony, we um, spent the last segment talking a lot about the importance of connection and nature and the way that people see the world. Um, You are dedicated to bringing to the planet and to society um, the sense that we all have the right to live a healthy life and that there are implications for our actions when we invade um, the earth and when we take actions that um, create complications that then create health problems and that, you know, we need to raise the consciousness around that. You know, we've been talking about this for how long now? I mean, the whole idea of climate change, the whole idea of um, pollution and issues. I mean, I remember... Back in the '60s, this was an issue that was brought forward. Um, I remember that there has been, um, you know, a whole lot of time, energy, money put toward this, and I'm wondering, you know, are we ever going to get to the place where um, this is quote fixed? Well,
3: I think uh, you ask a very good question. Uh, going back to 1970, when we had the first Earth Day. Um, You know, at that time, uh, as as an example, there were no national uh, laws that control pollution. People find it hard to believe today, but in 1970, we didn't have the ability to control air pollution, water pollution. Mm -hmm. There was no federal role in protecting water supply in the United States, um, with the exception of interstate carriers uh, like buses, trains, planes. Uh, and boats, and we had uh, we had no uh, none of the authority that we have today to try to 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 get industry and municipalities and others to find a way to not, either not pollute or find a way to control the pollution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So since 1970, we have passed 37 major national environmental laws,
4: mm-hmm. and
3: um, the United States has done a terrific job in dealing with conventional um, much, much of the conventional wa- water and air pollution i mean compared to when i was growing up when you see the um, the clarity of the skies today in comparison yeah. to when we you know uh, when you said as you said when we grew up in the in the 50s and 60s and the early 70s it was quite different however the challenge is that we don't we we have a, a We have a big conceptual problem, and that is that every time we try to find a way to um, to control pollution um, or deal with any environmental issue we run up against, we run up against the idea that uh, it 's too expensive to do so yeah. it 's um, jobs versus the environment <clears throat> and it was that that got me to go uh, to um, you know, after I had successfully been the commissioner of the Environmental Department of Massachusetts, and, you know, we, um, what I mean successfully, that I would actually done the job through three different governors, and, and, and we had passed, you know, some of the most comprehensive legislation uh, this country has ever seen, <clears throat> and I was working on that at both the federal and the state level, and then um, we even, um, working with Senator John Kerry, um, who was then Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, uh, he and I worked on the first international agreement uh, in the world on acid, on acid rain, and that was between the six New England states and the five eastern Canadian provinces. And uh, we did that in 1983, and that was the predecessor to the Clean Air Act amendments of 1970 that controlled uh, acid rain for, um, for all of the United States. I decided after I was had been working at at the state for uh, for the eight years that I was there that I went back to Tufts to become the first dean of environmental programs at a college or a university. And the one, the reason that I left government, which was my passion in life, is I be, I realized that there was something wrong with the way I was communicating, that I couldn't help people see that there was a false Um, there was a a false dichotomy between economic growth and wherewithal and protection of health and the environment. And I couldn't understand what was wrong with my way of thinking that I couldn't help people get beyond that. Mm -hmm. Because it didn't matter when when I was the state commissioner, it didn't matter if we were dealing with a wetland problem, a water supply problem, a, a water pollution problem, a solid waste problem. Toxics in the environment, the same issue kept coming up over and over again, and that is it's too expensive. It's right. grow now, worry later.
4: Right, right. And
3: I kept, so when I went back to, to, to Tufts to be the dean of environmental programs, I tried to say, what is it about our thinking that, and our mindset that gets in the way? And I mm-hmm. began to realize that it was our, about the way we were being educated. Right. And so um, I set out to work within the different schools of Tufts University to, um, to begin to introduce programs to create specialists in the veterinary school, in the medical school, in the School of International Affairs, in engineering uh, and in nutrition uh, to, to, um, to find ways to educate people who could help solve these problems. Well, and, 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 and then I began to realize something that was even more important, and that was that the current way we're actually educating people is continuing to cause the problem because we're basically assuming that the Earth has an, an infinite supply of resources to make all the things that we need in society, to feed us, to house us, to clothe us. And uh, at the same time, it has an infinite capacity to assimilate all of our wastes. And it doesn't. And so the whole education system was designed around the notion that that we can just willy nilly keep doing things right. and if we only work a little harder and a little smarter, we can solve all of these problems. Right. So that is when I began to understand that we needed to um to step back and have people see that the challenge we face is that the environmental problems are not environmental problems per se. Mm. They are the consequences, the negative consequences of a system's design failure. In other words, the way we have organized ourselves economically, politically, socially, Mm -hmm. technologically is what is causing all of these problems. And unless you find a way to reform all of those areas, we will never solve them.
2: Well, that makes a lot of sense, and you know, I um, as I look at some of the <clears throat> things that you've done, what I've noticed is there's a lot of firsts, and one of them was the one you just mentioned was um, as dean of environmental programs at Tufts University, and the fact that you were able to actually in 1989 create um, the Tufts Environmental Literacy Institute, I mean that in itself. Takes not only vision, but a capacity to coalesce people around an idea of possibility. Yes. You know, I mean, that really is a lot of what I think the work you do is about. And um, some of um, when when you try to make huge change happen, people or or transformation, people. often start in the attack mode, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, and don't often provide solution, and yet here you are moving into all of these conservative circles and saying, you know, there's a way for us to show up here that can make a difference, and, you know, talk to us a bit about what your experience was in doing that. Well... (laughs)
3: It's funny you should ask because I you know, at times I know that um behind my back people would say things like, Oh my god, here comes the Johnny Appleseed again <laughs>
4: Um,
3: here comes the greenie, you know, um here comes the you know, the Pollyanna. But you know what was interesting is uh is that what I found is that if you can work with people to help them not uh, to see that there is a more compelling vision for a way to be, yes, that they will jump to that idea. So, you know, as, a, as an idea, you see, one of the challenges we have is that when people think about caring about the environment and all the programs we have for environmental protection, it's always about protecting the environment and it's about the, the problems that we have.
4: Mm -hmm. Well,
3: problems are negative things that you don't want. You know, when you take away negative things, you don't necessarily get the positive. Um, Let me give you an example. If if I'm banging my head up against the wall and I stop banging my head up against the wall, I stop feeling bad, but I don't necessarily feel great. Yeah. (laughs) You know? True. And so we, you know, characteristic of what we've done is what we've keep, focus on these issues as problems mm. and, uh, and as an example of, you know, and how many times in society do we know of things that we've done that seem to solve a current problem only to create another problem someplace else
4: right. later
3: in time or someplace else in right. space? Right. I mean, the classic example is we build another um, highway to relieve the t- traffic problem right. and lo and behold... We find that five years later we still have a traffic problem, right. and so we then think about building another highways and, you know it 's like we're not, it's because we 're not really thinking about the systemic reasons for why the problem occurs in the face in the first place. So people have come up with a new way of thinking, which is to say, what about creating a vision for a society in which you can have as many people as healthy as possible, mm-hmm. in which you can have strong, thriving communities, strong, thriving and secure communities, where you have ec- economic opportunity for everyone, not just the top 20% of the population. And in, in order to do that, and one of the most important things to do is to try to live in harmony with the life support system, mm-hmm. because after all, the earth provides us all the resources right. which make life possible
4: right.
3: and, uh, and assimilates all of our waste. So now all of a sudden we're talking about a different issue. We're saying, okay, how is it that we can accommodate as many people on on the earth as possible with a decent quality of life? Mm-hmm. And that begins to ask, you begin to think about asking a very different question. And that question is, you know, what, is, what, it, what would it take for us to, to live sustainably on this earth uh, and particularly if we're going to have nine billion people on the planet by the by two thousand and fifty, which we are going to have no matter what we do, just because of the population momentum uh, of the size of the current size of the population, and that brings you to a, you know a, a pretty simple idea, which is um, three characteristics of how we can all live sustainably. One is to to um, run society on renewable energy, mm-hmm. not on fossil fuels. Right. The second is to have a circular production economy uh, where there is no such thing as waste because you eliminate the concept because every waste product would be a raw material or a nutrient for another industrial activity. Right. That's what happens in nature. Right. In nature, you know, nothing goes to waste, right. everything is recycled, if you will. So imagine an industrial society in which. When you're done with your computer or your your cell phone, it's brought back to the company right and made into a new cell phone or a new computer, mm-hmm. and you're eliminating toxic pollutants along the way and uh, and you're keeping all of the all of the elements in the industrial cycle and then the third piece is that we're living off nature's income, not its capital. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means, for example, you only take fish out of the fisheries at the rate that the fisheries can self-regenerate. You only take trees out of the forest at the rate at which they can self-regenerate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with respect to sustainable agriculture, that you're finding that your ways to, to, to take what you need for agriculture while you're preserving the quality of the soil and the, mm-hmm. and the quantity of the soil and you're protecting the quality of the water and you're eliminating toxics so that you can continue to do this ad infinitum. And we need to basically base the, the industrial society on those three principles, renewable energy, a circular production system, and living off nature's income, not its capital. Mm-hmm. And so when you say, well, what do we need to do um, to, to make that happen? Well, that's where you begin to go back and say, let's find ways that we can do that through our education system. Mm-hmm. So back to, the, you know, to the, uh, the idea that we had at Tufts in 1989 was, let's see if we can get people who are teaching in all of these different disciplines in economics and political science and chemistry and physics and biology and humanities and bring them together and focus on the big health, social, economic, environmental, Challenges mm. and how can we transform the way they're teaching those different those different subjects? Right. So that we're including those perspectives in the normal teaching of those subjects, mm. and we call that idea environmental literacy. I
4: and mind. that was,
3: and we were the first um, uh, college or university to do that in the country. And and you know, it's um, and here we are, you know, 20 years later. And uh, we're still, um, we have a number of colleges and universities that are beginning to do that now, but we're a long ways from making it a foundation of all learning and practice, which is why John Kerry, Teresa Hines, and I founded Second Nature in uh, 1993.
2: What an opportunity um, that you have had and are creating to really shape the way people see to shape the way new and emerging leaders um, look at the world, how they influence and impact the way business occurs. Um, You know, this is big stuff. And to, you know, be technical about it, it, I mean, you know, it's, it's very significant. And because you have the audacity to believe in the possibility, you're making it happen. And that, I think, is key to um, a lot of change, a lot of transformation. Somebody has to have the audacity. You almost have to be told you're crazy in order for um, you know something that big to get started. You know, if everybody thought it was a great idea, it, you know, it would, it would be, have happened it already. Happened already, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right.
3: And and the as you say, I mean, one of the things that's that's challenging is that. Uh, you know, this is not a, an easy thing for people to hear, but the fact is that there is no way that we can support nine billion people on the planet right. in the in the current way in which we're doing things. Right. It's just physically impossible, and it's already impossible with um, with uh, in 25 percent of the population of the world consuming 75 to 80 percent of the world's resources. It you know this this the um, the climate disruption yeah uh, you know, you know it 's really indicative of something that 's really a, a larger issue in a sense for the first time in the history of the world the the human humans have become the primary determinant of the habitability of the planet for ourselves and all of the species. This has never happened before. We are now big enough in numbers you know they, they um, we have increased in the last three centuries, last two centuries, excuse me, to the last two centuries, we have increased the population from uh, about um, six to seven times. Mm. During that time period, we've increased energy consumption by 80 times mm. and economic output 66 times. Mm. Wow. Um, that's, you know, so it's not just population, it's really consumption. Right, and so now we—that what climate disruption uh, is all about—is basically we're tinkering with the basic chemistry of the planet, mm. and that's never been done before. Oh. And the consequences of that, we know, going back—you um, know—several hundred thousand years are enormous. Right. And so we need to move rapidly towards that kind of society I was talking about, basically a low-carbon, renewable energy society, one that is a circular production society, and one in which we are focused on uh, improving the quality of life as many peop- for as many people as possible and living off nature's income,
2: not as. capital. Well, uh- I I love the way you said that the earth is our life support system, and I want to talk more about that when we come right back.
1: consulting developing leaders worldwide
5: are you a struggling entrepreneur unemployed professional or an aspiring business owner we live in extreme times and extreme times call for extreme measures enter kevin Lehman, a renegade entrepreneur and success coach who will highlight the intangible attributes you need to go rogue and get rich Moreover, Kevin will spotlight unique business opportunities that can be started on a shoestring budget but end in a millionaire lifestyle. Go rogue and get rich with Kevin Lehman. Airs live Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific and 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito and our special guest today, Anthony Cortese. Has been leading us through a story of um, how we can think a difference, why it matters that we need to care about the environmental change and what's going on with planet Earth. I loved how you said, Anthony, that the Earth is our life support system. And it makes me realize how little I have heard anything that resembles that comment. You know we as humans we don 't we don 't think of it that way you know it 's not our life support system, and yet, if we don 't have what it offers, if we don 't have good air to breathe, if we don 't have good water, if we don 't have um, a place that is um, habitable, we die
3: that 's right I mean you know as um, uh, you can as humans, we can go about three minutes without breathing about uh, three days without water and about three weeks without food. Mm-hmm the earth provides all the resources which make life possible, you know, food, um, all of the, uh, the, the all the resources that are necessary to house us, to clothe us, uh, to be able to make most of the things that allow us to live in society.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: um, and so, but we don't think about that, because somehow we've gotten this idea that if you just go to the supermarket or you go online these days, that you can get whatever you need or want, um just by paying money, and it will magically come to us. Right, right. And so, you know, in, in fact, the, our, our daily living is invisible to us. The average American, we consume our own body weight and resources, solid resources, per person per day, just to live. Yeah. And we have no idea because right. most of the impacts of that are invisible to us.
2: Invisible to us. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm wondering if um, the idea that we have become so removed from nature and so removed from the source, you know, milk comes from the grocery store, it doesn't come from a cow. And, you know, is, is it important to have ways to get people to connect back Into nature, to spend more time in nature, in some way, does that matter?
3: Yes, it does. And but it's two things. It's not just spending more time in nature, but it's realizing where things come from and where waste go. Mm -hmm. So, as an example, you know, if uh, I take my little laptop, five and a half pound laptop computer, it took about um, uh, three or four thousand pounds of materials went into the making of that computer. Wow! But there's no way that I would ever know that. Right, because it's not reflected in the in the price, mm-hmm. and the the price of the of, of most of our products don't reflect the total cost to society. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if we were to look at the real cost of a gallon of gasoline, which is say, yes. around two hundred two dollars and you know seventy five cents a to right. a gallon, right. the real cost In the U.S.
2: that is yes in the
3: U.S. Yeah, you know, the 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 cost of a real cost of a gallon of gasoline. The best estimate is it's somewhere between. Eight and twelve dollars a gallon, mm. depending on uh, if you inc- eight dollars if you're including all the negative consequences of uh, extraction of the oil from the ground, um, issues like the, the recent spill in the Gulf, right. uh, the air pollution, um, you know, climate change, and a whole bunch of other disruptive things that are, occur. And uh, twelve dollars a gallon if you <laughs> include the uh, the amount that we spend on defense. To keep oil flowing from parts of the world that are hostile to the United States. So, the, you know, there used to be a program on TV called The Price Is Right in the, in the 60s, in which you guess the if you guess the uh, the price of the product, you won mm-hmm. you won the, uh, the the product. Well, frankly, the price is wrong, and and so we have a we create a kind of self deception in society that we can just continue to go on and that. Uh, you know, uh, with things willy-nilly. So the, the, what we really, you know, the, the, it's really, um, I want to say that it's really not so much about about protecting the environment as it is right. understanding right. that it's our way of life that's at stake. Right. You know, I'm not worried about saving the planet. Uh, the planet has survived uh, five major extinctions already. The, late, the last one was 65 million years ago, during which the, dinosaurs became extinct. Mm-hmm. The issue is whether or not, and, and we're, by the way, in the middle of the sixth major extinction as a result of human activity, because we're losing hmm. species at an enormous rate. Really? Um, yes, we are. Um, and, it's, and the, the issue is, is preserving the Earth's capacity to support a modern civilization.
4: Mm-hmm. So the,
3: the notion here, and this, this is why people have come up with the idea of something called sustainable development and that's uh, economic development um, that meets the needs of the current population without, uh, without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. So um, it really is about meeting people's needs and having a more harmonious relationship with the life support system mm-hmm. from which all the resources are derived right. is the most effective way to do things. So as I was saying earlier, uh, you know, um, you know, 94% of the of of the materials that go into an industrial economy become waste before you and I ever see the product or the service. Right. That's the bad news. That's also the great news because we're so inefficient that if we could find different ways of making and doing things, and that's where education comes in, mm-hmm. then we have a lot of capacity to um, to live within the constraints of the planet and be very creative about about making the things that we that we need, so that everybody has a decent quality of life.
2: Well, you know, human beings have proved for a millennium that um, we're very innovative. We can make mm-hmm. things happen, you know. And yep. so, what is the tipping point, you know, where everybody gets on board, or at least a majority, enough of a majority, get on board, so that the transformation happens. Well, I think that's
3: why education is so important, and I, you know, um, I do believe in the in the in the notion of of, um, of you know setting some really um, bold goals. Uh, I, if you recall, when uh, President Kennedy said we were going to go to the moon in a decade, yeah. nobody believed we could do that.
4: Right.
3: The engineers and the scientists um, said it was it wasn't feasible, couldn't be done, but because he had a um, and had a vision for society that was so compelling because it was necessary for us to be become a first-rate economic as well as a first-rate military power in the world. He was able to, to get the resources, get the Congress and the public behind getting all the resources, and we got to the, we got to the moon in less than a decade.
4: Yeah,
3: yeah. And, and it was because of that bold vision, But you see, it wasn't because he was trying to solve a problem. He was trying to. He said, "This is our goal, and this is the way it's going to pull the entire country in this direction." Right. And in essence, that's what um, I've tried to do with our work at Second Nature: is to Mm -hmm. work with colleges and universities to get them to see that the current way in which they're teaching and operating is actually making the current problem worse, Mm -hmm. and that what we really need to do is transform the educational system so that people are not just learning in silos. Right. Physics and chemistry separate from economics right. and political right. science, but we're really learning how to think systemically and in interdisciplinary ways as well. And that and um, what was been pleasing to me is to see how we now have, you know, 675 college and university presidents that have stepped up and said right. we are going to be the first Institutions in society to do what is scientifically necessary, and that is become climate neutral. And we're going to ensure that all of our graduates will have the knowledge to help society do the same.
2: Well, and that's quite a feat that you are accomplishing. And those universities, of course, will are what they're doing is they are um, putting in place the systems that will then make them. Sustainable and That's relevant right. and viable, and um, and there's and so much money. more. And there's so much more to learn about this. And Anthony, we have come to the end of our show, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. um, we could be talking for another couple hours. Um, but I know people will want to know more. So, how do they reach you? How do they learn more about this?
3: Well, um, they can go to uh, www.secondnature.org. And, um, and from there, it will take you to uh, the site for the American College and University President's Climate Commitment, which is www.presidentsclimatecommitment.org.
4: Great. Right. And, and let me just,
3: let me just say, okay. Cheryl, one, um, one thing that we didn't have a chance to talk about. This work is not easy, and it okay. takes a long time. Yeah. And there are two characteristics that are really important. One of them, and this is fundamentally what I believe my entire life, is to always give credit to everybody else other than yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that people will actually own it for themselves and right. develop the capacity to do it by themselves.
4: Right.
3: And the second is you need to be persistent. Because we were talking about earlier, when you first approach people with these ideas, they think you're crazy. But you know, if you just keep at it, and you keep bringing new ways of helping them see things differently and helping them see how this will be an advantage to them, you can create all the change in the world that you want.
2: Beautifully said. Absolutely. You're an inspiration, Anthony Cortese, and we wish you well with Second Nature and all of the endeavors you are involved in. For anybody who wants to know more, remember, you can go to secondnature.org, S-E-C-O-N-D nature.org. So thanks for being here, Anthony. It's been a pleasure. Thank and you, And remember, Cheryl. everyone, to think big, because the world will be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito.
1: Leadership is not static; it evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.a-l-e-x-s-a-c-o-n-s-u-l-t-i-n-g.com. Alexa.